Welcome to Holy Fools in the Soul of Craftwork. I am Dr. Jesse Joyner. And I'm Stephen Gross. And if you're new to the podcast, Jesse and I are both PhDs in education and people of faith with a curiosity about craft learning as a means of spiritual formation. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the previous podcast in which we interviewed master juggler David Kane, it's a good idea to pause and give that a listen first because this episode is based on that one. So what can the craft of juggling teach us? Well, let's find out. But before we do, Jesse, what were your initial reactions to the interview with David? Yes. So one of my favorite things that he talked about was his work in the hospitals, like children's hospital work, going in and juggling and performing and telling jokes for these kids, some of them in very uh, you know, chronic pain situations or yeah. maybe... Uh, you know, end of life situations or any, you know, or, or early on in a process of, of sickness. And he, he spoke about going in and giving them the agency and the option to say yes or no to the visit from the hospital clown. And just how powerful that was because everybody else that comes into their wards or into their rooms, the kids usually have to say yes to the doctors, the nurses, the checkups, the procedures. But when the clown comes, the clown can say, would you like me to visit today? Yes or no. And then honoring that answer. Um, I think there's a lot of power in that, in giving agency to the child and the beauty of the role of the clown being able to offer that as a gift um, of of agency. And I think that's going to lead into where you and I are going to go today about like serving the audience, really. What about you? What's something that jumped out to you? Before I, I talk, why don't you go ahead and I know this is in your sweet spot because you're a professional juggler and you've done a bunch of research on jugglers and gestures and history. Talk a bit about that, kind of the the role of jugglers and gestures throughout history and kind of their their embracing of this the the foolish, kind of strategic foolishness of their vocation. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I even found in my dissertation research about Christian variety performers that they held a special key that most other jobs and roles in life don't have. Uh, they had a they had a free pass or a red carpet to what I called the least of these. So uh, like prisons, hospitals, refugee camps, like most other jobs can't come into these doors. But the clown, the clown is welcome in all of these places. Mm -hmm. The clown is invited into these places. And the clown has this disarming effect, like no matter where he or she goes. And that that they're they're the fool they're the ones that they they provide no threat they provide no uh you know nothing to preach they are there to uh to share joy and laughter and buffoonery really um but to your point that role has actually been it has a long history of being dis of of the the church especially unfortunately but a lot of society showing a lot of disdain and uh negative reaction to the fools and putting them down and mocking them a fellow named Oren Clapp wrote an article about this this role of the social type called the fool as a social type he wrote this in 1949 in the American Journal of Sociology and he points out that the the fools in history these are jesters and other kinds of fools in, in like royal courts in Europe. They were the only ones who were given permission to like kind of just by society, they were given permission to speak truth to power without getting their head chopped off. Um, right. So, so they, ca yeah. they carry 
they they with their disarming presence they actually carry a lot of um power if you will to to use their words and their satire and their jokes to put down the king or the queen and to point out maybe where the king is in the wrong any other human that did that would get their head sliced off but uh, the fools could get away with it and uh, so that's we can put the reference to that article in the show notes of course that's one thing I appreciated about Dave's interview is that he's pretty self-deprecating. That's why we we call them the Trojan horse of juggling. But he um he seems like he's he embraces kind of that maybe less than lofty image of the juggler, but it, it's allowed him to get into spaces and places to serve that if if ego was the only thing, he wouldn't serve there. And that that's one thing that came to me as I was listening to the interview, the idea that if if you're credible and you have craft skill and you've, you've honed that craft, it can put you in position to connect with others and serve in places that might be unexpected. Sometimes you're able to serve in areas, whether it's the children's wing of the hospital or for you, I mean, you have a great story and it's timely um, considering the conflict in Israel right now, but back in the first or second intifada, you, you got a chance to juggle there in Israel. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a memory that's seared in my mind for my entire life now. Uh, I lived in Israel, studied in Israel for a semester for three and a half months in the year 2000. And we didn't know it when we showed up on campus, but a month later, the second intifada broke out. This is the fall of 2000. This, the second intifada, intifada means uprising. So it, it was an uprising of the Palestinian people fighting for uh, freedom, rights, existence, and so on. And uh, we were we were there living in Jerusalem in the midst of it. We could I remember going to the rooftop of our school um, like standing on the balcony outside the library. I was trying to get some homework done. And we heard uh, we heard what we thought were fireworks in the distance because we're a bunch of American kids and all we're used to when we hear loud bangs in the sky are fireworks. And for most of us, but we step outside and we all realize, no, this isn't fireworks. This is, uh, this is tank fire and gunfire, you know, just going on in, in the valley right across from us where we were. And it, it was very eye opening to all of a sudden find myself like in the theater of war all around me happening. And that very next day after we heard all that tank fire, um, I had already been previously scheduled to go visit a school in Bethlehem and juggle for the kids at this school. Like the the people in the area found out that I was a juggler through some connections. And so this headmaster of a, of a school in Bethlehem came and picked me up and Bethlehem, by, by the way, for the listeners is in the Palestinian territories. So anyway, he picks me up at the school, brings me to this Bethlehem school and shows me where I'm going to perform. It's inside this little building and I start performing for the kids. And these are, uh, these are Palestinian children that have grown up with the sounds of war and the sights of war all around them. Um, and so I, I did my show. It was like 30 minutes long, 45 minutes long, made them laugh, had a great time. And I didn't think much of it, but then after, after the show, the headmaster came up to me and he said, um, thank you so much for doing that today because these kids, when they go out to recess, they play funeral like mm. that. Th- those are the exact words he used. He said they play funeral. And I was not prepared to hear those two words side by side in a sentence like ever in my life, like to play funeral. Um, but that's what they did. They would pretend that they're doing a funeral procession down the street when they go outside to play 
because that's what they saw day after day in, in their own streets. And what it told me was that here I am this silly little juggler that I don't hold the key to their success in life. I don't, I'm not going to heal their wounds. I'm not going to like fix the, the peace in the middle East. Like I'm not going to do any of this stuff, but as a juggler with the tools in my hands, if I can bring a little tiny flicker of a candle of hope for like 45 minutes in the minds and hearts of these kids, uh, then, then so be it. And I, I will do what I've, what I can with what I've got. And, and my, and I pray that they continue to find hope and, and light. And I, and I continue to pray for peace in Israel and Palestine. Um, even to this day, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it is very timely. Um, I'll add one thing to that story. When he took me to this school on the way we stopped in a little village, uh, near Bethlehem, which, which is where all the fighting was happening that we were hearing that night before. And I saw with my own eyes, the, the, uh, destruction of a town in a village, they were sweeping up the glass from the, from a rocket hitting the side of like the church building in the town. It was actually the church of St. Nicholas, good old St. Nicholas for, for which we get Santa Claus, the right. church of St. Nicholas outside of Bethlehem had been hit by a, like a, like mortar fire the night before. And he took me inside the church and the priest's chair, the bishop's chair had like gunshots through it. And there was shrapnel and glass on the ground. I, I drew a picture of it just remembering it. I, I just found it this morning as I was, you know, kind of re reflecting on everything that's happening right now. And that's what David and your experience has shown, that there's a way to do your work, even if it's considered quote unquote foolish work and in a disarming way, but it actually positions you to serve people, make their lives better, even in an incredibly hard situations. So and recommend craft pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. And we never well, think that as performers, like jugglers, we never think that when we sign up for this job, like we don't, we don't go into this job thinking, Oh, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to get a free pass into all these like dark places of the world to bring lights and hope to them. Like it just happens. It happens. And you find out that that's the case and you realize that, yeah, the, in terms of gifts and calling and everything that we're talking about in this podcast, I think, uh, Yeah. Once we step in, into the callings that God has given us and realize what our gifts are, we start we start seeing new ways that those serve the world around us. And it's humbling. It's very humbling because it's yeah. not me. It, it really is like we have to give God all the credit because it's his gifts and, and his work in the world. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, let's shift into learning concepts. So from the interview, what did you see there? What did you hear that also can have some traction for us as we think about our own approaches to faith and work. Yeah. In terms of, of learning concepts and themes, the biggest thing that stood out to me from David was when he said that early on in his career, he, he wanted to do what was most impressive for the audience. He wanted to juggle like the most number of things or do the most flashy trick. Mm -hmm. But then he said later in life, he learned that he wanted to instead do what was most effective in terms of serving the audience. And so that distinction between impressive and effective is so good. And how no matter what we're doing uh, in life, we need to think in that paradigm of mm -hmm. like, how can we serve others in our work um, rather than stroking our own egos with maxing out the talent just for the sake of maxing it out in front of others to impress them or something like That's the temptation I think for all of us is to just impress yeah. others with whatever we think we've got. Um, but the more important thing is what's most effective at serving the people around me. And, and that's, that needs to guide 
my process and my practices. On the same thing, that was gold. One of his quotes was, I can teach this concept using a five club trick that's more impressive than using a ball spinning trick, but that's more effective. And I think that's a big shift when a person matures in their vocation. If you can make that move from thinking, what is the most impressive way to serve to what is the most effective way to serve? And that's a great diagnostic question, I think, for lots of vocations. Is the work that I do primarily about me or is it about the people I've been called to serve? That reminded me of the work of vocational learning theorist, Selena McEwen, who put forth this construct of vocational training known as a pedagogy of deliberateness. Big words, kind of nerdy, but the concept is as a person grows in a vocation and mastering that vocation, they generally move through three different stages. The first stage is task execution. So that's gaining the knowledge and skills to become a competent practitioner of whatever vocation. And that's paying the dues of a vocation. Now, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers, and he puts forward the idea of the 10,000 rule. So 10,000 hours of practice will make you proficient. Now, there's a lot of pushback on that because it's kind of an arbitrary number. And just because you work at something for 10,000 hours doesn't guarantee you're going to become a master expert of that. But the, the basic concept does hold water that you actually need to inhabit a vocation for a good long while to be able to execute the core tasks well. And David talks about that in his interview. He said, because I've done hours and hours of juggling, I can almost now step outside of myself and consider fine-tune adjustments on the fly during a show. And that takes that pain the dues and just doing that work, oftentimes alone, grinding away at it to get to a place where you can actually then stage two, analyze that practice. So how is it going? What's going on? And then stage three is creation. So getting to a proficiency where not only can you do the core tasks and you can do them well enough so you don't have to think about it and you can analyze your own practice, but you've gotten to a level, you really understand the vocation to the point you can do something creative and new that serves the vocation to make it better, but also serves people through the vocation. So any thoughts on that, that pedagogy of deliberateness and those stages? Yeah, I think that is definitely like a high level of mastery of something is when you get to that point where you're so good at it that you can, even in the midst of doing the work itself, you can step outside of yourself, Mm -hmm. think about how to improve it, but also again, like think about the audience or think about the the clients or the people, whoever it is that we're serving, um, we do them a service by by working to be excellent at our own work. Because as we're seeing right here, because when we do, we have freed up mental space and emotional space and physical space to to think about them more and and yeah. to focus on them. Um, I I do feel that. And I, I want that. I don't feel like I'm even there yet in life. I want to get better at things that I do so that I can be more free to think about the others around me and how what I'm doing can serve them. Like that's, I feel like I'm on, that's a journey that I'm on myself that I want to keep growing in. And that is the journey. And I think what's, what's helpful about thinking about craft practice and the history of craft learning is it puts forth kind of a sobering calculation that you have to work at something for a good long time before you become proficient enough to do it well and considering different perspectives of it. So for example, I'm a minister and I've done countless funerals, 
it takes a certain amount of funerals for you to actually focus on the people you're serving, not just being freaked out that you won't screw it up. And until you get those, those um, repetitions, you're not going to be able to analyze how you're doing in it or even think through, maybe this is a better way to do it. Maybe this serves the family better. That's grieving. Maybe this is a a more clear way to talk about uh, the message of Christ at this funeral. You really have to pay your dues to be able to do some of those, to get to a place where you don't have to think about yourself, but you can get out of yourself and think about who you're serving and also how the vocation works to leverage it in a really helpful way that helps people flourish. And so that, I mean, the funeral thing is my example and you I'm sure have a ton of them as well, but that came to mind in that three stage progression. Yeah. There's a great quote from a children's book of all things uh, called the clown, the clown of God. So speaking of jugglers and clowns, Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy DePaola is a children's author, and he writes the story about the juggler of Notre Dame, which is an ancient medieval tale about a juggler that finds his way and finds his calling and vocation. But his DePaola's iteration of the story um, opens up like this. The, the traveling juggler is going from town to town on his performance tour. He passes a pair of monks on the road. They share a meal with him. And then one of the monks mm-hmm. says... Our founder, Brother Francis, says that everything sings of the glory of God. Why, even you're juggling, said one of the brothers. And then Giovanni, the juggler, he said, well, that's well and good for men like you, but I only juggle to make people laugh and applaud. And then the brother said back to him, it's the same thing. If you give happiness to people, you give glory to God as well. So when we serve others with the gifts that we've been handed, we're not just serving them, but we're serving God at the same time. Absolutely. And that's our hope is that we can integrate our faith and our work more seamlessly so we don't see that sacred secular divide between the things that we do in our callings and the way that we worship the God who called us to those callings. Well, let's segue now as we think about a foolish learning challenge, because this is a learning transfer podcast. So here's what comes to my mind and a question. Are there ways in which ego is driving you in your work? And how am I taking yourself less seriously, help you to serve people and add value where you've been called? And so one thing that comes to my mind in my own practice of work, so I'm a minister, and just to put our cards on the table, I think most ministers want big churches um, because there's more resourcing, more opportunities. Uh, But the truth is only about 8% of churches in America are more than 250 attenders. So most ministers really will never work in a large church context. They'll work in medium or smaller settings. And so the question is, how how can ego get in the way of serving faithfully at whatever scale of craft practice you've been given to steward? So that makes me think about, you know, getting the ego out of the way so that I can actually just care for the people that I've been given to care for, um, rather than thinking about all the things that I don't have, which will slay the opportunity to do faithful practice right here. And David offered a good example when he said for years he had obsessed with being in the Guinness Book of World Records. Just that was his thought. And then he finally did get in for a number of records that he had. And he said, you know what? It didn't my it didn't change my life a bit. And I think that's really a good lesson for us as we think about contentment in our work and faithfulness in our work and not letting ego get in the way and just being faithful with that practice. Because then he talked about identity. You know, if you have a solid identity, then whatever scale you're called to at this time, you can do that and enter into it rather than thinking about everything that's not happening. Because David, he tried and had 
has been so close to being on a bunch of national shows and having his own kids series. And it just, for one reason or another, didn't work out. But yet he continues to faithfully go to the children's hospital every week and work in the ward with the cancer cancer patients. And it's it's just a good, I think, challenge to us to think. Any thoughts on that, Jesse? Yeah, you. I think you nailed it on the head with the word identity right there. Because, and David said it himself. He said that he'll talk about how he's for so long wanted to be written in the book of the Guinness Book World Records. But he said that didn't mean anything. But he said, but my name is written in another book. And that's the book of life. And so that's the that's the identity of those of us who are in the Christian faith. We believe that our name is written in the book of life. And that identity alone is what drives our our callings. It's not the superfluous achievements that the human achievements and the trophies that we earn, although our egos want to think that that is what it's all about. So we need to somehow <laughs> counter that and remember the the book of life and the the prize at the end of winning the race, the 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 well done well well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, like those are the identities being sons and daughters of God uh, that that give us the grounding we need so that we're not chasing after all of these human achievements. So that's the foolish learning challenge. So whether you work in a church or not, and most of you don't, and that's great. Think through that question. Are there ways in which ego is driving me at work and how might I take myself less seriously? And how can that serve to help other people that I've been called to help and add value to? So next episode of the Holy Fools, we will be interviewing blacksmith bear reed and consider what we might learn from the craft of metalworking that's going to be a great one till then goodbye this episode of the soul of Craftwork is brought to you by the roaring fork fellows program are you a 19 through 29 year old interested in starting well in your career with a strong faith and work foundation the roaring fork fellows program is a nine-month internship for young adults located between aspen and vale in the roaring fork valley of colorado For more information, go to RoaringForkFellows.com.